Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. I'm very excited to be here today with my guest, Ellen Matloff. Ellen is the president and CEO of My Gene Council, a new sort of genetic information service. And she's a Forbes.com contributing writer and the former director of the Yale University Cancer Genetic Counseling Program. Ellen has already played a part in the history of the field of genetic counseling. And from what I can see, she is not done yet, right? <laughs> sure hope not. <laughs> yeah. So how long have you been a genetic counselor, Ellen? I have been a genetic counselor since 1993, so 15 plus years. Oh, excuse me, That's 25 plus years. Yeah, I take yeah. it back. Come on, we're, we're in STEM field. I'm, math is not my thing, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's more than 15. Um, and and for, for most of that, were you a cancer counselor? Yes, for 18 years, I was a cancer genetic counselor. For two of them, I was pediatric adult. And now, as you know, I'm in the startup world. Yeah. So I mean, start, so just, I just wanted to say, like, the first time that I think I knew your name, and this is a, this is a big deal for for me, because this is, I'm, you know, follow the ethical legal stuff, uh, was that you were a plaintiff in the famous ACLU suit against Myriad that began in 2009. How did that come about? This was, sorry, for anyone that doesn't know, this was the lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court and overturned the, uh, you know, negated the idea that genes could be patented. So how did you come to be involved with that? My quest to kind of free the genes began in, I would say, 1998, when our laboratory at Yale received a cease and desist letter, and we were told overnight that we had to stop performing BRCA1 and 2 testing. And my initial reaction was, this is wrong. How can you patent a human gene? And I started writing about this topic and lecturing about it long before it was a popular topic. In fact, I would say it was a very unpopular topic. And that's how and Were I, you doing research? You were the lab was doing research or you were you doing uh, clinical testing that you did at were you out and out challenging the Myriad patent? So the clinical laboratory at Yale was doing both both research-based testing and clinical testing. Because in those days, essentially 100% of the clinical stuff went through Myriad, unless it was research project, which is why you got the cease and desist, right? Well, many of us had been doing BRCA1 and 2 testing for a few years and didn't know that, uh, that patents on these genes even existed. So we all received, all laboratories received a cease and desist at the same time. Mm hmm. Um, so when did you talk the ACLU into doing this or did they come to you? I wish that I had thought to talk the ACLU into doing it. I actually first went to several large patent um, attorney offices across the United States to see if they would take the case pro bono. And I was able to get two attorneys at two different firms interested in the case. But when they checked their conflicts of interest, huh. everyone had a conflict of interest with either Myriad Genetics or one of their funders, and no one would take the case. So, no, I did not contact the ACLU. The ACLU contacted me. And, 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 and can we just 
can we just take a minute right now to think about how crazy it seems in 2019? I mean, that law just got changed. That was 2012. How crazy it seems now, the idea that genes could be patented. Like right now, like what, what would we get exome reports back and they'd be redacted like, like top secret documents, you know, like. Well, what's more likely is that you wouldn't get an exome report because there would be so many patents on so many genes that the cost of testing would be out of control or redacted, the entire report redacted. Right. And it wouldn't be possible. So our entire field of genomics, as we know it, could never have come into place without losing, without the overturning of that, without that ruling uh, that threw out gene patents. And yet, at the time it happened, it seemed like an incredible long shot. Like everyone was saying that the ju- the judge would never overturn the, the patent. Everyone was saying it not only at the time of the case in 2013 when it finally reached the Supreme Court, but I mean, I'd been talking about this since 1998. There's a lot of years between 1998 and 2013. Wow, you were really on this. All oh, credit. He, and, Let me tell you something. It was not popular. People were ticked off and said... Yeah, so at that point, people were saying that this was how they were going to make money in the field. Like, if we didn't have patenting, we weren't going to have progress. And we weren't going to have innovation. That was the biggest thing that, you know, taking away gene patents would stifle innovation, which I knew then and we know now is complete BS. So credit to you, Alan. Credit to you that oh, you well, saw that you. so early. Um, so, um, so then 2012 goes to the Supreme Court. That's very exciting. Uh, you're at Yale at that point in time. Um, so, but now you've moved to something different um, and very high profile. So tell me, tell me, was it like they couldn't keep you down on the farm after you've seen DC? <laughs> Not exactly. Not exactly. But I think there were there was a series of events. And the first in May of 2013 was Angelina Jolie's letter to The New York Times, which you remember well, saying that she carried a BRCA mutation and it had a bilateral prophylactic mastectomy. And we saw referrals to the clinic increase by 40 percent overnight. And we were looking at a nine month wait list at Yale at the time. And just a few months later, we got this unanimous decision at the Supreme Court and gene patents were banned and the cost of testing for BRCA2 was slashed by 50%. And that happened the same day as the decision. And all of these labs were competing with Myriad and also offering not just BRCA1 and 2, but whole panels of hereditary cancer genes. And so we saw that more and more people were going to be able to afford testing. And at the same time, the direct-to-consumer market was taking off. We could see that more and more people were doing 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And we were also seeing changes in medical management guidelines. And we were also seeing some errors occurring in the field because people were having their genetic test results interpreted incorrectly. 
And it was kind of this confluence of events that I could yeah. just see the tsunami. I remember coming. this, this, um, this within the same time period, there was like, um, Myriad made a push to, to have more people tested through their OBGYNs or through their cancer docs and not using genetic counselors. They were yes. advertising directly to people. And I was hearing so much from the people in cancer that that was okay. They were ordering tests, but they weren't necessarily ordering the right tests and they weren't interpreting it well. And that the, there was a, a lot of GC concern about the quality of care people were getting in that first change where tests started to be ordered more broadly by a bigger range of professionals. And by the way, that's still happening. That is still a major issue in the field today. I know in my area, there's one place that they have mammography techs ordering the genetic testing. Oh, yeah, of course. That makes sense. I mean, <laughs> uh, um, and I frequently order, you know, uh, frequently interpret mammograms for, for patients. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, exactly. so. so how, how different okay. could they be? That might have been my snottiest comment ever. Let's, let's, let's go away from that. So, so, so I'm your, let's say I'm your typical. So, so, so my gene council was envisioned as a way to scale up rapidly answers for people who got test results and didn't have immediate access to genetic counseling or in a combination with genetic counseling. Is that, is that kind of a fair like way of thinking about it? I think it is because we were also seeing people who had genetic testing and ne never even knew that there was something called a genetic counselor. And so we realized, you know, we're not trying to create a replacement for genetic counseling. We're trying to replace, well, we're trying to create a tool that is scalable, that is digital, and will let people know that there is genetic counseling information and genetic counseling professionals available. So so I want to like just step back a little bit and make sure, because I... I only had a vague idea of what you did. So I'm your, let's say I'm your typical customer. Let's say my doctor has ordered a BRCA test. Is that, uh, uh, or a breast cancer uh, risk susceptibility test? Um, is that a typical customer for you? Is that yes. fair? So, and I come to you, what am I, what am I going to, to get and what does it cost? So you would be able to upload your test results. And whether you were positive for a deleterious finding, a pathogenic variant, mm -hmm. whether you had a variant of uncertain significance, or whether you were negative, you could upload a matching MyGeneCouncil Living Lab report, and it would stream you to the information that we as genetic counselors know are the frequently asked questions for someone who's received that result type. And uh, when you say a living lab report, is that to say that you continue to get information over time as, exactly. as more comes in? So I think of this, here's how I think of it, not so much as genetic counseling, as a Google alert for a gene, like mm -hmm. a specialized, curated, validated sort of Google alert. Is that fair? You think that's a decent description of, of the product? I think it's a decent description of the product when you say it's curated because a Google alert puts into your inbox 
any piece of junk out there that happens to mention a certain term, right? we don't do that. We choose what's important. We curate it so that the customer or the healthcare provider can understand it and can use it. And we push it out to them by text or by email so that they're always up to date in the area. Because let's face it, most people who are lucky enough to see a certified genetic counselor see that person once or twice and then never again. And and so this is this is for I'm imagining, right? So I'm imagining that this would be either for somebody whose doctor ordered the test but isn't really um in a position to do the counseling, isn't really uh, um, themselves all that knowledgeable, maybe about genetic testing, or somebody that gets a variant of uncertain significance and wants to continue to follow it, but um, uh, wants to know that they're going to find out if something new is de- is determined, but doesn't know where to turn for that. Um, I could see either of those. Is that is that like is that who you well, see? Is that who's 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 coming to it? It's also for people who are going to go in and see a genetic counselor, but maybe can't get in for three weeks or three months, Mm -hmm. and they need some immediate information so that they're not Googling it and getting a mix of correct information and wrong information. And then if they have that information, they can use their time with the genetic counselor more efficiently and more effectively. And if um, is the doctor's that you that you work with or that they do they know that they aren't doing a good enough job are they they like looking for help on this or do you have to sell the idea to them what's your what's those relationships like so we're now in discussions with some health systems so it's not so much the individual physicians although some of them say look for more information and to keep up to date this is where you can go mm-hmm. but it will more be health systems who realize and you know, we had a situation in the last couple of years that someone had genetic testing through a well-known cancer center on the East Coast, mm-hmm. and it was part of a research study, mm-hmm. but they weren't, they were not notified of their positive test result for nine months. That's, and that seems bad to me. Can we guess? This is like a a wellness, like a gossip column for genetics junkies. A (laughs) well-known company, Cancer Center on the East Coast, (laughs) known as an acronym. And so I I think these places are just overwhelmed with demand. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all see that not only is that horrible care, but there's potential liability there, um, not only for you know, that the that patient could have developed another cancer or could have missed out on a treatment that would have been most effective, but also for family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely, I can see the value added. I can see the difficulties. You're, this, this idea of working with um, health systems, that's something that's like down the road for you guys or it's something you're doing now? We're in discussions with one large health system now, and we have two other that are in earlier discussions. What about about a research study? Because I've worked with people who are doing um, research, and um, they may uh, do genomic testing, and they're sort of wondering, okay, how how do I fulfill my obligations to research participants 
but I'm not in a position to counsel them. I'm not really in a position. So, so like, it seems like it might be a solution for, um, for either academic or, uh, or commercial, uh, research ventures that want to offer something, uh, to people that participate in genetic testing. Have you, are you? Absolutely. And we, we have had an inquiry by a large research study, but also by some pharmaceutical companies who are doing genetic testing on any, every clinical trial participant, but are returning no results because they have no scalable means to do so. Well, it's a big, this so, is a big issue, right? Because this, all these, all these recent, there's been a number of recent, very influential, very, very, um, well done papers suggesting that we should be returning results more often that we're sort of missing the mark with research participants by not giving information back we're losing opportunity we should be treating them more that it's that it's not treating them respectfully that's certainly a school of thought and yet when you get down to the brass tacks of how do you do that when you're talking about testing and what do you do what would you do in situations when that testing may not be clinical grade testing Well, in their living lab report, it goes into great detail about the type of testing it is and why that result needs to be retested with a new DNA sample in a medical grade laboratory. And we actually walk them through those steps. And I assume that's the same thing you say if somebody has a direct to consumer report and they're working off raw data. What if it's off the actual report versus raw data? Do you make a distinction? So, So somebody, let me somebody who did direct to consumer can either come in and say, all right, I took this test and it says I have this, my report says I have this deleterious BRCA mutation. Um, And I'm talking about the direct to consumer that in this case that has not had the involvement of medical professional, or they can have downloaded a raw data file, put that through Prometheus and come up with a result. Do you treat those the same? No, we actually treat them differently because we know that, for example, the Ashkenazi Jewish BRCA findings that 23andMe has FDA approval to report back to the consumer mm-hmm. are are very likely to be accurate. Right. Those are validated in a different way than their raw data files. That's right. And so we still recommend, we still recommend that for people who get those types of results from 23andMe, that they repeat with a new DNA sample in a medical grade laboratory. And 23andMe recommends that as well. Mm-hmm. But for the raw data reads, we counsel them differently in these living lab reports and let them know that, you know, between 40 and 50% of the time, those results may be inaccurate. And that they, you know, about the same percentage, they could be accurate. And so those also need to be repeated with a new DNA sample and a medical grade laboratory. You know, I want to ask you more about this, but it, uh, I've been having conversations with people recently, and there's a lot of terms floating around, clinical grade, medical grade. Um, I use them too. Uh, they're useful. I, I'm not quite sure how to define them, though, because... Um, 23andMe, the the labs are CLIA certified, which is the sort of floor, right? Like like yes. nothing's medical grade unless it's CLIA certified. But I don't think you're calling it a clinical grade test just because it's CLIA certified, because a lot of this work is done in CLIA labs and still needs to be rechecked. 
Do you have a definition for that? I guess I would define a medical grade test result as a result that you can then act on. You can make medical decisions. You and your healthcare providers can use this as part of your management plan. And 23andMe self-defines their results as not being medically actionable, that they should be repeated. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a lot of motivation to do that. But yeah, um, I mean, from the FDA. But um, all right, so that's interesting. Okay, so everything we've been talking about is cancer, but you... God, I sound like an ad. You recently rolled out a cardio project. <laughs> cardio, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Part of your product, product also, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's sort of the same idea, but for car- in the cardiogenetic space. It is. And next is we're finishing off the ACMG or the American College of Medical Genetics 59 and launching into pharmacogenetics. Well, sounds ambitious. Um, so this is a first stop. And you know what? I didn't, I asked you this before, but we didn't, we, we didn't get to it, which is, I think, really important is that one of these things is it's a first stop that people can afford, right? Like, so if I have a raw data file report We've, from direct to consumer testing and I come to you, what are the costs like to get some quick information in my hands? So our introductory pricing, um, is, $35 a year. So it is a subscription service. Yeah, but that's uh, for something in the medical world, right? Like that's only two figures. Like, yeah. That's right. And so people have questioned the cost, um, <laughs> including people on my own board. <laughs> and uh, I will tell you that the reason, there are a couple of reasons we set this price at this point. Number one is I didn't want for anyone out there who needed accurate information, I didn't want price to be a deterrent. And so we wanted to keep it low for individual consumers. But the second reason I wanted to keep it low is you've got to remember, these people are buying a genetic testing kit for $200 or less, and then third-party interpretation for like 12 bucks. So to set the genetic counseling at $300 for genetic counseling information mm-hmm. wasn't going to fly in the marketplace. No, it, I mean, it leaves people in a bad place because they think, oh, it's not even $200, right? These, these, these tests can be like, it's a sale for a holiday, 99 bucks or whatever. Right. And then, you know, $10 for Prometheus on top of that. And all of a sudden, Boom, you find out something, and I'm putting this in quotes, interesting. So the rest of the world may think that interesting is fun, but in the medical world, Mm -hmm. interesting is terrible, right? You don't want to be the interesting patient. And I was always determined that price would not be the deterrent for people to get real information about their genetic finding. And I feel even more strongly about that now. Mm-hmm. Do you get any pushback from the genetic counseling world that this is, um, you know, we're often sticklers, right? Like that the only good way to do genetic counseling is the perfect way. And we want it to be long enough and with the right person Years ago, there used to be arguments about doing it in person. Now, I think it's widely accepted that that they're you know we're, we're all much used to do much more used to doing everything 
online by text on the phone and so on. But yeah, but still like I, not automated. And this is kind of an automated deal. And how does the genetic counseling community reacted to that? Mm. Well, first, let me say I was one of those sticklers. So, you know, when I started the program at Yale, people had to come in for three visits, one before they had genetic testing, just to do like family history and discussion. Mm -hmm. The second to get their risk assessment, to do their informed consent, to have a very deep risks, limitations um, discussion. And then they gave a DNA sample and then a third in-person visit to get their test results. So I was one of those sticklers because I think what people don't realize this was such new territory mm -hmm. and it really was not greeted um, by everyone with a lot of joy. Like I know at my own institution, you know, I had moved, I'd been recruited and to Yale and had moved to Connecticut to start this program. And I can remember when I presented BRCA one and two testing to our research oncology team that one of the nurses raised her hand and said, what you are suggesting is mutilation of our healthy patients, and we think it's disgusting. Wow. Yeah. So we were really being careful. And so, yes, we were doing it in person. And yes, there were, were multiple sessions, but it, it may feel like looking back on it now that we were trying to be paternalistic. We were really trying to be cautious and mm -hmm. trying to be responsible, but the field has evolved and we need to evolve as a profession too mm -hmm. and really see where the changes are, see what consumers and patients and providers want and meet those needs. Mm -hmm. So what percentage of your uh, customers you've seen so far come in with a direct-to-consumer result versus come in with a clinical result? So far, it's been mostly clinical results. And so we think that's going to change because we're going to be launching a program for people who've had direct-to-consumer testing and need to verify it in a medical-grade laboratory. So our percentages are going to flip-flop very soon. Yeah, I, I'm... I, uh, that's exciting, by the way. Do you want to tell us any more th Thank about you. that? That's exciting because there are a lot of, you're hearing a lot of stories. I wrote one, uh, about people in just this situation and they really are kind of high and dry, right? Like it, it's it, the, the direct to consumer reports that come home often say on them, contact your doctor. Right. But in fact, I think that moving from the direct-to-consumer world into the medical world isn't always an easy move. It's not an easy lateral move. Like insurance companies don't want to pay when somebody's only risk factor is something they found on direct-to-consumer and they have no personal history, they have no family history, you know, um, they're, 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 there's no f spot to check on the intake form at the clinics for direct-to-consumer result. Maybe there will be soon. I don't know, but... Well, so let's talk about that because the letter that you wrote, I guess it really was really an article in the New York Times really talking was. about <laughs> Matt Fender and his story with direct-to-consumer testing is something that really hit home for me because here people are getting test results on their own. They've done an at-home kit. 
they're bringing it to their healthcare provider. And still in the year 2018 or 2019, many of them are being told like, oh, those results, those don't count, throw those in the trash. And they, you know, we know that not all of those results are baloney and that about 50% of the time, it could be a real result. And how does a person in that situation find the bridge back? Right. And in Matt's situation, it was a, uh, he was told that he had a positive mutation for early onset Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, uh, it didn't turn out to be true. Uh, but if somebody tells you, look, you have a 50% chance of having this mutation that's going to get you all, it's going to result in you having Alzheimer's by the time you're 50, there's not a lot of people that are going to handle that calmly. Like, who would, right? Like, that's that's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And I have to tell you that I have since experienced this myself as a genetic counselor and as someone pretty well-versed in this area. and. I didn't respond the way I thought I would have responded. I freaked out. So what happened? You know, I've been doing um, all of the popular at-home genetic tests on the market. I started this last summer Mm -hmm. because I wanted to better understand the marketplace from the viewpoint of the consumer. And I've often found that as health we think we understand the consumer or the patient experience until we become the consumer or the patient. And <laughs> then you then you really get to experience what it's like. Right. So I've been doing all of these kits and I've been keeping a diary about it and I've been writing about it in my Forbes articles. And one of the ones that I did had to do with ancestry. Mm-hmm. And I received the ancestry data and I was prepared to get ancestry data that wasn't terribly accurate was surprised when the ancestry data exactly matched what I knew about my family history. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow, this, I'm surprised this stuff actually can work. And then I downloaded the raw data and I should say I attempted to download the raw data and found that it was trickier to find on that particular site than I thought of. So I earmarked a block of time when my daughter would be at a play date. And I dropped her off at the play date and drove to a nearby coffee shop and figured out, you know, I had to Google, like, how do I get my raw data from this site? And I downloaded it. I uploaded it to a third party interpretation tool. And within like eight minutes, I had my report. Mm -hmm. And so before I opened the report, I was like really trying to be very reporter ish about this. Mm -hmm. I said like my raw data report is sitting here and I'm about to open it. And who knows, I may be one of those people who gets an unexpected surprise. (laughs) Did your mother never teach you about testing fate? Yes, seriously, right? Kinahara, we would call this. Yeah. Um, And right at the friggin' top in a red box, it said pathogenic variant Lynch syndrome. Wow. And I sat there for a minute. I kept reading it and reading it. And you have, do you have family history? Anything? Well, that's the first thing that came to mind is that both of my parents are alive in, in their 80s. 
and don't have Lynch-related cancers. My, I have a sister who's in her 40s and does not. I have not. And so my first thought was, this is clearly a false positive. And then <laughs> what struck me was that my father has had polyps removed during colonoscopies over the last 20 years and has frequent colonoscopy to remove polyps. And I have an uncle who's had kidney cancer as well as a more distant paternal relative with kidney cancer. And I have almost no paternal female relatives. And so obviously, I wouldn't be seeing ovarian or endometrial cancers on that side of the family. And in the middle of this coffee shop on a Sunday morning, I had this revelation like, holy, yeah, I may have Lynch syndrome. Hmm. And I kept telling myself like, it'd be a false positive. But when I was looking at my family history in my head, I was thinking, I am a perfect example of someone who could have Lynch syndrome and not have a typical family history of colorectal, uterine, and ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's when panic set in. And I, you know, started texting my husband and my co-founder, who's a genetic counselor, simultaneously. Um, and was going back and forth. And, you know, my co-founder, Danielle, jumped right into ClinVar and started looking around and was like, hang on, let me see. Let's see what kind of data we can get. And my husband was saying, if this result is right, what should we be doing? And I said to him, oh, I need to get my uterus and my ovaries removed a decade ago. Right. So and and, my and had you was, had you already seen the Ambry paper uh, documenting that like uh, 40 to 50 percent of these results are are inaccurate or you hadn't. Oh, seen yes. That yet. So you, ha so you had knew that. So you knew that I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. But even though I knew that <laughs> and, and even I, like though I said, I'm, I'm saying that to you, but that still leaves 50 percent that are right. Well, you know? and now. In my own mind, I have a family history that could be consistent with this result. Right. And so my mind jumped right ahead to, holy shit, can I say that? Yeah. Okay. Holy shit, I need to have my ovaries and my uterus removed, but then like, I'm more than 10 years past the age 35 that we usually tell people who carry who are high, you know, who have Lynch syndrome to have uterus removed, I may have cancer right now. And, oh, no, this is such a head game. Because well, if I started thinking I might have colon cancer right now, I'd be like, you know, I mean, I'm a 50 something year old Jewish woman, like, like, if, if you want to produce thoughts of like, intestinal distress, this is not difficult, yeah. right? Like, Wait well, and for me, for me, it went to ovary because, you know, that's a big fear. Sure. Um, and my next thought was, I just was thinking of like what this would mean for my nine-year-old daughter, for my husband, my stepdaughters, my parents, like 
my company, my colleagues, my coworkers, my yeah, friends. Yeah, like yeah. It was that's just a rabbit getting, hole. Oh my gosh. I couldn't, I could not dig out of this friggin' rabbit hole. Isn't that amazing? It, it, it you know, I, I don't wish this on anybody and sp- perf- certainly not on you, Ellen, certainly not on you of all people. And, and, and yet you listen to the story and you feel like it's almost like if you could fake this experience for every genetic counselor without actually putting them through it, it's so helpful. Uh, you know, to, it was, uh, it and was. That's, that's, that's terrible, but it's, 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 we, we, sh- we should all, um, have to go through some variant of the experience of feeling that level of panic and anxiety so that, you know, it, cause it's easy to be dismissive of other people. Um, well, it is. And I consider myself a pretty empathetic person, but going through it, and really thinking of what that would mean for your life is a completely different experience. And the only thing I have to compare it to was 20 years ago, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. The morning of her mastectomy, I was in Connecticut. She was in New York. And I really thought of like a scalpel. And I thought of her breast being cut off. and. I was actually ashamed of myself for the way I had talked about prophylactic bilateral mastectomy to so many patients in a very matter of fact way, like this is a pretty safe procedure, Um, you know, we're not near any internal organs, things that are all true. Mm -hmm. But like when you think of someone you love having part of their body hacked off, Mm -hmm. it's a big friggin' deal. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think that's a really great point. And um, we all do get a little bit glib about what these things mean for people in their real lives. Um, It's easy to be, uh, you know, it's like, oh, you just take a pill and you're fine. Like, a lot of these things are, are, you know, it's, it's very big deal. The treatments are a very big deal. The psychological costs are a very big deal. The actual it. procedures are a very big deal. And it's very easy to talk about it when it's not you. You know, it's like that habit that um, some medical personnel have of, of calling pain discomfort, you know, like, hmm, right. What is discomfort? Yeah. Discomfort is somebody else's pain. That's what discomfort yeah, exactly. is. Exactly. You know, <laughs> me, it just hurts. <laughs> right. But, um and and that's really our a reflection of our own what is actually discomfort and not pain. Like we don't we don't want to go there all the time. Well, we can't. Yeah. Right? It, like if you had to go every single day with six patients or 10 patients or 15 patients, you would last a week. Yeah. So I get it. There's some sense of desensitization that has to occur in order to allow you to do your job. Mm -hmm. However, I think that going through these experiences, at least for me personally and professionally, has been so incredibly valuable, like to see where your mind goes and what you're like, you're thinking about your nine-year-old kid not having a mom next year. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. And Do I think I overreacted? Sure. Do I think that I, as a genetic counselor who knew the data and knew that this could be a false positive, like, 
Should I have been able to slam on the brakes? I guess so, but I also count people for 12 years who've lost their entire families to these cancers. I've, I've seen these patients die. So I get it. I get the gravity of the situation in a way that maybe not everybody walking down the street gets it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a really great point. Um, and did you write about this, Ellen? I did. I, and it's fascinating because I wrote an article um, in Forbes about this that was called I Had Lynch Syndrome for 30 Hours. And I was concerned about the title and about the content. So I wrote, ran it by a few of our Lynch Syndrome patient advocates mm-hmm. just to get their blessing before I published it. Wait, and you got to pick your title? Because this is I, one of the, the things everybody should know about writing for newspapers and magazines. You don't get to pick your title. You I get you know, to pick I, the headline. Right. I do. As a regular contributor, I do get to pick my titles. So important because when I haven't been able to pick it, the titles they have picked, I wouldn't have signed off on. Right. Um, yes, I've been there. I'm sure. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah. You know how that feels mm-hmm. and it can really mip- misrepresent your story, but I actually picked that title because I knew that it was attention grabbing mm-hmm. and I wanted to get a conversation going about this. And so far I've only heard from one person who was very unhappy with the title and the story. And she felt that I made it sound like Lynch syndrome was a death sentence. And I certainly didn't mean to do that. I don't believe that. I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you this, for anyone who is knowledgeable about hereditary cancer to pretend that getting a diagnosis of, you know, learning that you have a pathogenic finding for Lynch syndrome is no big deal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that you're either terribly naive or you're lying. Mm-hmm. It is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly is. I mean, right. I think it's very powerful what you just what you just said. And um, and the good news is that you are in a position to actually do something about it. That's nice. That's gratifying. How does it? How how is it being in the entrepreneurial s- space? Um, how have you found that as a genetic counselor? Have you, hmm. you know, as a genetic counselor who had 20 years in academic medical settings, when you never worry about funding or getting clients, it's been a total new life experience for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the last four and a half years, I've grown so many new synapses and, you know, <laughs> cause I've had to do something completely different. And it's been challenging and it's been rewarding and it's been scary and it's been, you know, exciting. Um, So I'm happy about it. But I think that what we're doing is something that is desperately needed and that we saw it was needed before a lot of other people saw it was needed, including a lot of clients saw that it was needed. Mm -hmm. Um, so we so, were in the right place at the right time, but it's only now that people get that they need what we have. And um, did you have any trouble as a genetic counselor? I mean, um, as, uh, as a person with an MS degree in a field that isn't as well known, did you have any trouble with funders? Did you have any trouble getting a business set up? Like, was that, was that a struggle? 
Yeah, I would say that the biggest problems I had in terms of getting investors had to do with the fact that I don't live in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. that I'm female. Mm-hmm. And That's actually that one of my questions, yeah. Yeah, and that I didn't have any, you know, quote unquote, hard business experience, even though I'd run a program for 18 years, it's, you know, people don't view that the same. And it's not the same as running a startup. Mm. But I was able to really utilize my strengths and past experiences to find investors. That's the good news. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Um, And you think it would have been easier if you weren't uh, female? You know, I hate to pull that card out because I feel like it's kind of a trope at times that, you know, Mm -hmm. gosh, it would be easier if I were male. But one thing that amazed me because I hadn't really experienced it to this extent in academic medicine that I think, you know, I know it exists in academic medicine, but I felt like some trails had been blazed for me Mm -hmm. in academic medicine. But in the business world, I would go to these meetings or like investment opportunities. And it truly would be a group of men between the age of 50 and 65, all standing in a circle facing each other. Mm -hmm. And it really felt close to impossible to penetrate some of these circles of people who had known each other and worked with each other for years. And there, there just were no, no women. And that that's been challenging. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And I, I actually appreciate you sharing it with us because it, it's, um, it, yeah, you, you don't almost don't want to say it because it sounds like you're, you're making some sort of excuse for yourself or, or which isn't necessary, right? Like you got your business started, you got it off the ground. I would feel the same way. I, I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't want to sort of just say the, the most cliched at this point thing, but I think it's important right. for people to know, like, what's the, what's the world out there for us? Is it hospitable? Um, what are we going to have to, what are you going to have to be prepared to meet with if you go down the route of building your own business? And it's not just women. I mean, I would say that also underrepresented at the event ended has been anyone with a visible disability, mm-hmm. um, really anyone who's not white, (laughs) you know, there've just been very few ethnic or religious minorities who are wearing things that, you know, make it clear they're a religious minority. So I I think there are still a lot of barriers in business and it can be hard to find mentors. My mentors in the business world have really all been white men Mm -hmm. and they've been very good to me and very encouraging. But if I originally asked my attorney, like, can you introduce me to some women who've done this? Mm-hmm. And he wasn't able to, not in my area. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you'll be that person for the next I person. will be. Yeah. I plan on I plan on it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so any interested entrepreneurs out there, <laughs> keep in mind... <laughs> She made the commitment right here on the Beagle. <laughs> Helen yes. will be there for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So this I was will. such a great time talking to you today. I appreciate it so much. Um, it was my pleasure. And I, I uh, loved hearing about your, your business, and it'll be exciting to see where it goes next. Thank you, Laura. 
and thank everybody listening for joining us. Uh, go to the website at thebeaglelanded.com. Subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Thanks.